I'm so psyched about today's class because um, when we start with the point of information, which is going to be our basis and our team tag for this class, we're going to take a peep into principles. Notice that this is about debates from scratch. So what I will be doing is ensuring that you all have access to the nitty-gritties of debates, the nitty-gritties of argumentation, the nitty-gritties of theories that are going to help you generate possible opinions about different issues. So I'm just going to state here that many times in a debate, even though you do not know about the workabilities, even if you do not know how you're going to apply certain um, policies, even if you do not know how to create change on a mechanistic level, you could also as well still win a debate on a principled level. And we'll be looking at that in the second segment of today's uh, podcast edition. So please stay with me while we go into points of information. Um, we had spoken earlier, we had spoken earlier about points of information. We had mentioned points of information, but I want to give a definitive scope of points of information. You see, a point of information is a question or comment made by a debater to a speaker on the other side of the motion. Ideally, this interjection is made within the middle five minutes of the speaker's speech. That's the speaker holding the floor. Remember, we had said earlier in British parliamentary debate, every speaker gets to speak for seven minutes and the first minute is protected. We gave a reason why. Protected time means that, you know, no one gets to interrupt your speech. And the reason why the first protected time exists, the first one minute, no one gets to ask you any question or makes any interruption, is because you're just establishing your case, right? In that first minute, you're establishing your case. So naturally, you have said nothing worth questioning. In the last one minute which is the seventh minute itself, from the sixth minute mark to the seven minutes mark. No one gets to ask you a question because then you're expected to round off your speech. You can't round off your speech if you consistently get interrupted. But then there is five minutes in between. That five minutes in between allows people to ask you questions. But, you know, you can't have questions from people on your own side of the team. You must have questions from people from the other side of the team. And that's how British parliamentary debates work. So... A debater may offer a point of information by rising while a speaker of the other side is speaking. Okay? Um, there are other variations to it. You could say POI or on that point and so on and so forth. We'll go, we'll go through that down the line. British parliamentary debates, like most competitions, do not allow speakers to offer points of information during the first and last minute of a speaker's speech and instruct judges to give time signals to in indicate when points of information or POIs are allowed. The debater offering the point of information may say something like, on that point, when they rise, so that their opponents and the judges are aware of their request. The debater giving their speech can either accept the point of information or decline it. Often, by saying, I'll take your point, or no, thank you, or words to that effect, you could either accept or decline a point of information. It is also acceptable to dismiss a point of information by waving one's arm in a downward motion, indicating that the offeror should take their seat. So now, if accepted, the offeror of the point of information should ask a question or make a comment designed to challenge their opponent's argument. This point should not last longer than 15 seconds. And a typical example of it could be, uh, isn't it true that nuclear weapons have kept peace between great powers during the past 60 years? You know, that question is catchy. It is concise. It could be delivered within 15 uh, seconds duration or even less, and it is effective. The offerer should then resume their seat and allow the speaker a chance to respond to their challenge. Speakers should aim to take at least two points of information while speaking and offer at least two for every speech on the opposing side. No point of information may be offered to the other team on your side or to your partner. Please do not offer a point of information by uttering anything which reveals the content of the point of information before it has been accepted. By saying, for example, on the law or on the point of the law, 
or um, not at all. Uh, can I clear your doubts and stuff like that will not be, you know, accepted in the British parliamentary format. If the POI offered is refused, the speaker who offered it should sit down immediately. It is unacceptable for a POI, which was offered and accepted before the six-minute mark, to continue to be made past the six-minute mark. It should continue until the debater offering it has been cut off or concluded their POI. It is also acceptable for a point of information offered before six minutes to be accepted by a speaker dead on the six-minute mark and then be made. So then, after having explained the logistics, because what I just went through was the logistics of the point of information, I want us to understand why a point of information is necessary in a debate. Like, what is the essential value of a point of information? In many debate formats, you have, you know, people coming back to do rebuttals and, you know, do summation speeches and all of that, but not in the British parliamentary debate. In BP debate, what we do or what we encourage is critical thinking and on your feet responses to real life questions. It means that to test your mental stamina and sagacity, you will be ushered into a point where your, your arguments are queried by the people on the other side of the debate. What this does is for them, it allows them test your question or test your arguments with questions on a real life basis. But what it does for you is it provides you an opportunity to dissolve the doubts of the adjudicators, or the judge, the judge uh, adjudicators on the judgment panel, and to further establish your case. Permit me to say this, that usually when you look deep into point of information, or into, in fact, when you look deep generally into questions people ask, and this is where point of information has helped my life particularly out of the debate sphere. Someone asks you a question and you know where they are going with that question. Okay? It is in, it's a skill that I have trained through points of information. So if someone asks me, you know, um, a certain question, for instance, X, Y, Z, I can infer from the circumstance the question emanates from to know, okay, this is why the person is asking that question. So even if the person doesn't need to reveal their intention, but just asking the question already gives me insight. What does this do for you while arguing? It makes you understand the worldview and perspective of the offerer of the points of information. Now, remember, if you're speaking very early in the debate, it makes a lot of sense, and I advise this on a strategy basis, that you try to take points of information from people who will speak much later in the team or much later in the debate. Because what it does for you is, since you're not going to come back to give a one-minute summation speech, you will have that 15 seconds duration to get a sneak peek into what the arguments would look like. You might not have prepared for the level of sophistication that they are bringing into the debate. So once you have that sneak peek, you can now synthesize independent ideas that are going to, um, that would establish your case and make it further relevant in the long run. Do we understand at least up to this level? Okay, beautiful. So I would also appreciate that um, except when it is absolutely uh, necessary, you could uh, feel free to unmute your mic and you know, speak through the audio channel because this is a podcast and I will really appreciate the feedback for those who will be listening after this recording has been done. Okay? Thank you all very much. So OKJ okay, Emmanuel says yes, that he understands. And um, that is great. So I'm going to go into some of the um, challenges we have with points of information or some of the other clarifications that points of information must take. I want to look at a specific concept. This concept is called cutting off. This concept is called cutting off. So I want to look closely at cutting off. 
Okay. So what? See, interrupting a debater who is giving a point of information is known as cutting off. It is done when the speaker holding the floor does not allow 15 minutes to elapse and disengages the speaker who is asking the question, also known as the offeror of the point of information. This is not a fair thing to do because not only does it weaken the persuasion of the speaker holding the floor, it creates an assumption that you really do not know what you're doing with regards to your argument or you're not convinced by your argument. So you're worried that their question might set you on the rough track. It, it reduces confidence on your material. However, nevertheless, a speaker may legitimately cut off a point of information after 15 seconds has elapsed and resume their speech, ideally by addressing that point of information that was offered to them. Speakers should not cut off a debater who is giving a point of information before 15 seconds has elapsed, unless the question being asked is fully clear at that point. Regardless, whenever a debater delivering a point of information is cut off, whether rightly or wrongly, they must stop speaking and sit down. Obviously, if a debater giving a POI finishes or finishes their POIs under 15 seconds, a speaker is not cutting them off when they resume their speech. So that's like one of the technicalities with point of information. Okay? It's one of the technicalities with point of information. And it's something that must be understood. So, the next technicality is barracking or badgering. Is barracking or badgering. After a POI has been offered, and is, uh, offered to a speaker and rejected by that speaker, another POI should not be offered within the next 10 seconds by any debater. If that happens, it is going to be termed barracking or badgering. So let me explain that term because it seems to be like a jargon for the spot. Barracking is in the sense of a barrack, like an army barrack, a mobile police barrack. The idea is intimidation by force. So creating a noisy environment to detract or distract the speaker who is holding the floor by consistently asking for POIs in less than 10 minute interval after your previous, sorry, 10 seconds interval after your previous POI was discontinued or was declined is termed badgering. Or barracking because in that way you're using the voice sound of your voice to distract the opponent it is not um right and usually the judges will call you to order but it is best not to do it because it gives too much credit to who you're doing it to especially if their material is not so strong you make the judges to think that oh because you're hell-bent on distracting these people maybe they should look closely at their arguments to see you know, what it is that scares you about the argument. So you force yourself into undue scrutiny from their team or from the judges or the panel of judges. Okay? The next one is point of clarification. It's still on that point of information. Don't get it wrong. Like, they're just, there are different types of points of information, right? But let's look at point of clarification. Debaters sometimes offer points of information with the phrase point of clarification. Usually to the prime minister's speech, to indicate that they wish to ask a question about how the prime minister is setting up the debate rather than make an argument against their case. This is totally permitted. But point of clarification otherwise function entirely as any other point of information. Speakers are not obliged to take point of information just because it was labeled as a point of clarification. Taking a point of clarification does not count. Sorry, it counts. It does count as taking a POI. Okay, because it is a POI. Points of clarification have no um, special status in the rules whatsoever. Therefore, the speakers that are offering POIs are simply allowed to use that label point of clarification when offering their POIs. And that is that. Points of information do not initiate a dialogue. Once a point of information has been made or cut off, the debater making it sits down. They must offer new POIs if they wish to interrupt this, the current speaker again, but they must do it 
you know, after a considerable amount of time has elapsed. The choice of which team the speaker chooses to take POI from should be integrated into the judge's consideration of whether or not the speaker has engaged well with other teams. So this is the point where I'm telling you that, you know, you really have to try your best to take points of information from all the teams in the debate, you know, at least all the teams on the other side of the bench, because there'll be two teams on the other side. So try your best to take at least one, one point of information when you're staffed for time. But otherwise, you could take at least two points of information from your closing and one, one point of information from your opening. Why I think that's a better strategy is that two points allows you a deeper insight into the case that will come much later after your speech. And one point um, is sufficient to engage your immediate um, opposition because, you know, already they still have some time to speak within your um within the opening side of the debate if you guys are in opening okay <clears throat> it is safe strategy to start by first taking the closing team if you are in the opening so as to enable you obtain insights to their extension and factor in on the spot material which could additionally prolong your relevance in the closing half debate that is yet to occur. The ju this judgment is also likely to be affected by how active teams were in offering points of information. So if, for example, opening government teams refers or offers a closing opposition speaker plenty points of information, which are continually refused, then the closing government who have not offered any points of information offer one, okay? some minutes into closing opposition speaker speech and it's accepted, it may be symptomatic of closing opposition trying to ignore or shut out opening government. So, you know, there's how teams relate. And I think maybe I should break off now to teach you how teams relate because that's where you get to understand this point in BP debate. Teams relate. Amazing Grace, I see you. I see you. Uh, Amazing Grace says basics and she's celebrating it. Um, thank you very much. Um, there are four teams, two teams on each side. The first two teams will be the opening teams and the last two teams will be the closing teams. I'm trying to give you a mental imagery because we are using audio. But if you are in subsequent classes and if you go up the tech space, you would see a lot of material to illustrate the team placement. So for the first two teams, one is the proposition team or the government team as we call it in BP debate. And then the other is the opposition team. So let's call, for the sake of this debate, let's call them government, first government team and first opposition team is called team one and team two. Second government team becomes team three. Fourth government team, fourth op uh, the, sorry, the last opposition team, which is second opposition team, becomes team four. So you now have team one, two, three, four. But team one and three belong to the proposition side. Team two and four belongs to team opposition side. There is a relationship between team one and team four. And that relationship is called in BP debate a long diagonal relationship. It is a relationship between the team that opens the debate and the team that closes the debate. Effectively, it is best strategy for those two teams to look for a way of relating with each other because it will be the team that opens the debate having arguments that were relevant in the opening half challenging the arguments that are relevant in the closing half also remember in bp debate they score you first second third and fourth in no particular order any team that is more relevant so even if even if team two and team four are in opposition side team two can come first or team two can come last while team four comes the direct inverse of that so there is no grace First to fourth is distributed at random based on performance within the team or, or, or based on the performance of the teams themselves. So whenever, you know, opening government is trying to ask closing opposition, that's team one, is trying to ask team four for a point of information, try to offer them a point of information. And a speaker in team four is refusing team one. In fact, and this is consistent between the two speakers in Team 4, in debates, it's called strategically blocking out the opening government. 
uh, it has disadvantages as well as it does have advantages. I will not really advise you, especially now, because a lot of judges would, would, would interpret that as you trying to, you know, block out the opening government. And because of that, they are going to have a lot more leniency in dealing with their material with respect to your material. You want to win and you want to win at your best. So I think that it is best for you to take points of information. Just like I said, if you're in opening, try to take closing points of information because it gives you insight into their material. If you're in closing, try to ask opening points of information because it allows you to challenge their material from minute one. And when they fail, you can come up and say, I even asked any points of information about this material and they were still flimsy and shabby about it to show you how unstructured it is and why they are destined to lose this debate. So you could do all of these things. These are legal gimmicks that happen within the sport. Moving forward, okay, it does not suggest, this does not suggest a confident willingness to engage with opening government argument when you block out opening government. Speakers may not demand that certain speakers or teams stop offering points of information. All debaters have the right throughout the debate to offer points of information to speakers from the other side. So you cannot say, I'm not going to take points of information and assume that nobody's going to ask you points of information. It is your right to ask. It is your right to accept or decline as long as you're the speaker holding the floor. Please note, if a speaker does not take a point of information but also was not offered... Okay, sorry. Yeah, but also... But was not offered more than one or two point of information, particularly later in their speech, this will not reflect negatively on their engagement with other teams and as such will normally not be penalized. So if you don't ask a speaker a point of information during their speech, it is not going to mean that you know, they did not engage you or did not engage with your team. You had your time. If you didn't ask, you did not allow for engagement. In fact, engagement is born by the person asking the point of information. If you don't ask the point of information, you are not engaging. And it's going to be actually a boring debate, okay? We want loving and exciting debates. But this only happens when, you know, arguments are being engaged. If you try to avoid them or run parallel debates, it's going to be a problem for both the judges and yourselves. Okay? So explicitly ask for a point of information and demonstrate a willingness to engage with arguments, even if no POI has been subsequently offered to you. So if you're holding the floor and you're speaking, you know, up to a certain amount of time, and you're worried, nobody's asking points of information, it's okay if you can say, okay, I would like to break now to ask for any points of information. Okay, that way you've established that you're, you have a willingness to engage with other teams. And if they don't ask you points of information at this point, then it is their fault that they are not engaging you. So, with that, we have come um, to the end of the idea of points of information. I'm going to pause now for questions before we get into the second segment, which is, a peep into principles. I can't wait. This is mouth-watering. A peep into principles. So, um, please, do we have any questions so far with regards to points of information? Or is there any clarification you want to know? Is there any challenge you have had with points of information that you want to discuss? This is the time to ask it before we move on. Okay, I'm getting a question on the text space uh, from Venom the Wayward. Would your time halt when answering POIs? Ah, uh, that's that's a smart. That is a smart question. That is a smart question. Will your time? Will your time get paused when asking a point of information? No. No. Um. Emphatically, no. Your time will not get paused when answering a point of information. The 15 seconds by which uh, you offer up to receive questions during your speech is part of your seven minutes overall, okay? And it is, why, it is why you have protected times, right? So that no one can ask you questions within sensitive times within your speech when you're doing your build-up and when you're doing your submission. But in between, it is allowed, okay? And your time will not be paused. However, your judges are going to take note you're just like going to take note of the points of information and the timing of the points of information. That way, they get to keep track of what question has been asked, 
how the question has been um, answered and the timing it took to ask the question. So if a speaker has reasonably exceeded 15 seconds, the chair of your room is going to call them to order and request that they sit immediately. So that's what's going to happen. Does that answer your question? Then on um, the wayward. Okay, he said, thank you very much. It does. Okay, again, like I said, feel free to um, engage by unmuting your mic um, when you need to ask questions. This is an interactive session. So, but I'll be taking also questions that you type in the text space as well. Um, yeah, Okezie Emmanuel. Okezie Emmanuel has this question. Okezie says, based on point of clarification, I think sometimes you would need more than 15 seconds. Uh, how? Okay, let me give you, this is the best response I'm going to give you to this, okay? Um, we will, at some point in our debate career, need more than 15 seconds to ask a question. That is the absolute truth. Not every question can be simply worded and framed from the top of our heads to precise 15-second length. But we are compelled to ensure that we have our 15, our questions or points of clarifications, points of information within 15 seconds. It is a, against the rule. It's against the rule for us to not have it that way. So you see, if you do not frame your questions such that, and this is where I always advise, to frame your question such that it contains within 15 seconds, one of the key things you should learn to do is have active note-taking skills. Be able to translate your thoughts from your brain to your paper as soon as you think them so that you can frame it into words, cut out excess verbose terms that do not necessarily convey your meaning and deliver only a very short, concise, authorized version of that question you thought up in your brain to the speaker, my, the chances are that it's going to be within the 15 seconds duration list. I used to have this challenge um, as a young debater where, you know, I get cut off a lot, but I'm not done making my point. And that point was really, really important. And I started feeling like the spot was unfair. But, you know, speaking with really experienced debaters then made me realize that a lot of them write down their point. Because sometimes you might be in a frenzy to want to ask a point of information you just thought up without writing it down. And the speaker gives you the opportunity to speak and all of a sudden you're blank. You are totally blank. If it hasn't happened to you, it has happened to me. You get blank and the question that you were holding so dearly has just eluded you. It happens. So the pen is mightier than uh, the brain when it comes to memory. So I really advise you use, use your pen, write it down. Sometimes it's best you write it down as well. You could pass it to your teammates. Most times I realize when you have a, a team that has a stronger member and a weaker member, what happens is many people try sometimes, and I think it's poor strategy, however they do it, out of fear, they don't want to take the points of information from the person they perceive is the strongest person in the team. Maybe they fear that person personally. So what they do is they will take points of information maybe from the other member of their team. In this case where you have written this point of information, you can share your notes with your teammates. And any of you who gets accepted for a point of information can ask the same question. It has the same deadly effect. But you have to write it down. I hope that answers your question, Okeze Emmanuel. Oh, yeah. He said that does answer the question. Thank you very much. I think Venom, the way what is typing. Um, Venom, if typing is going to be a bit stressful for you, you could just go ahead, unmute your microphone, and ask the question straight up here. Okay? And that goes for every other person. You could feel free to unmute your mic and ask questions. Okay. Um, I have a question. Yeah, carry on, sir. Yeah, so um, this is my first class, so I don't know if you've addressed this in one of the earlier classes. But I had a question concerning the point of information being raised by the opposing team. Yeah. You mentioned you can either accept it 
or you can dismiss it. Now, I'm taking it to mean allowing them to proceed with their 15 seconds to um, voice out their question or point of information would be would be considered you accepting it. Am I correct? Sorry, give me that last line again. They, they raised the point of information. The way you explained it, it's yeah. not that get up and then go straight into it. There's a process involved. Now, if you allow them to proceed with um, voicing out, detailing the exact um, questions, um, yes, the exact query they have as their point of information, that would be construed as you accepting their point of information, correct? Yes, yes, it would be. Okay. Now, my question is this. In the event that you accept a point of information and the question raised is irrelevant to your argument in that it's completely, um, it completely, what's the word I'm looking for? Out it's of completely scope. completely out of context, out of scope, or is based on a misunderstanding of a previous point that you made. Now, considering the fact that you are timed, you wouldn't want to waste too much time um, clarifying or um, trying to iron out a misconception based on something you've already said before. How would you address a situation like that without incurring a penalty for your team? Okay, um, that is great. So essentially, you're saying what happens when you've allowed someone to ask you a point of information and they're asking you a question out of scope or out of context and it doesn't really make sense to answer it. So how do you navigate those waters without being penalized? I think that if someone asks you a terrible question or a question out of scope or out of context, it's worth celebrating. Um, because first off, I mean, they have just ruined their chances at taking an aim for your material. So personally, what I would do is use that time to show how um, uh, your questions are irresponsible. Not in that exact terms, but show how your questions do not hold water, how they're out of scope, how they're out of context, and how you know, it doesn't really matter. It could go in very simple lines. And a lot of people have dropped sarcastic responses to those kind of questions. And trust me, those questions exist. In fact, because in BP format, you're allowed to ask any question particularly, like without any um, particular reference to restrictions on kind of questions you could ask, you, there is a plethora of liberty on what people can say during a BP speech. And people have said a lot. So it is not out of place to have this scenario you've said, but just take it gracefully. If someone says, um, stops your speech and says for some weird reason, why are we having for lunch? You can say, this question is out of context and you continue with your speech. If you do not have, like you said, you were pressed for time. If you're pressed for time, that's the best thing to do. Otherwise, if you have some time to play around with them, you know, make their point of argument look, um, how do you say stupid in a nice way? But make it look that way, you know, make it lose weight, make it look inconsistent, make it, make their, reduce their persuasion by the way you answer that question, and then you'll be fine. Okay? So, um, on the text space, uh, Venom the Wayward says, speaking in deficit of your time, that's reasonably below your time. Does it attract penalties? Like, speaking for five minutes out of a possible seven minutes. Uh, okay. Um, mm. Okay, let me give you, this is where I have to state the rule, one, the ultimate rule when you're doing your judges test. In fact, when we get to the class on judging debates, where you get to see the debate through the lens of an adjudicator and understand what an adjudicator looks forward to in a debate, you would, you would um, appreciate this more. But this is a standard rule for judging debates. And that rule is that there are no automatic losses. There are no automatic faults in a debate. So nothing you do can give you an automatic fault in a debate. Your question says that if someone speaks in deficit of their time, so you're supposed to speak for seven minutes and you end up speaking for five minutes, will you be penalized? There is not a direct penalty I can stay authoritatively in BP debate. No, 
the short answer to that is no, you, can, you will not be penalized. However, not utilizing all of your time might mean that you have not effectively um, carried out your entire advocacy and deconstruction. So if you did use your five minutes very well, then it doesn't matter. I mean, end your speech and go and sit down. In fact, I've been in rooms where a lot of people um, did not find the need to finish their time. You know, they finished their speech. Their material was concise, precise. They were satisfied with their delivery. And they said, this is the end of my speech. And they walked down to their seats. And the debate just continues. So nobody, there is no timekeeper who penalizes you for time. What the timekeeper does or what the chair does, you, you know, there are, there are apps on debates like um, Debate Keeper that enables you time your debates and, you know, uh, it could allow your chair to focus on their notes and not always have to look at the timepiece because they do a lot of note taking. So what that app does is that it just signals the time duration that is passing and then gives the time signals that the chair is supposed to do. So it rings the bells and so on and so forth. And when you get asked a point of information, the chair can tap on that on a POI button at the um, tab during your speech and it will count down a 15 seconds. That's how the chair knows the duration of time someone is taking to ask you questions. So the real short answer and concise answer is that you are not going to be penalized for using less than your time. But why we advise that you try to make maximum use of your time is just so that you can deliver your, your, con your content very well. But if you do deliver your content very well in a small amount of time, how be it five minutes, four minutes, three minutes, good luck to you. We are not going to penalize you for that. No one penalizes for that. You will not even have diminished credit. You, you might only have diminished credit when you have insufficient material or under-analyzed materials. So I hope that answers your question, Venom the Wayward. Um, moving forward, um, is, is there any other question before I go into principles? Any questions? Okay, I'll take that to be no questions. And I'll move over to a peep into principles. A peep into principles. Now, why I really love principles or why I love talking about principles is because this is where the beginner debater really gets to establish their base for argumentation. So you see, every other thing we give you is a tool that prepares you for the format itself. But then when we start talking about principles, they prepare you for understanding how arguments evolve, understanding also the depth of arguments, the breadth of arguments, the scale from which to prioritize arguments and all of that. These are gotten from principles. This is why I'm usually so super excited to teach principles. Um, principles are the initial form, the not so mechanistic form of debate. These are the underpinning reasons that legitimizes or delegitimizes de actions. Principles are the justifications for many mechanistic debates. They show the rightness and wrongness of a, of a particular case point, <clears throat> and so on and so forth. Before I go into some principles, I want us to look at some other principles that I did not, I did not have outlined in our lecture material. Um, I want us to look closely, closely at it. Let's look closely at the principle of utility, or as people will call it, utilitarianism. The principle of utilitarianism. Who knows what utilitarianism is? Or who has heard anything about utilitarianism or, util or the principle of utility? Feel free to unmute your mic and say something. Yeah, success. Feel free. Okay, yeah, Success Technical Director is having um, issues. So, Success, you can be typing in the text space. Um, can any other person tell me what um, the, the field utilitarianism is or if they've heard of utilitarianism or utility? 
Um, I have a basic idea. I think it was covered initially during my undergraduate course. It's um, the basic idea of Tehran is explained then is basically um, focusing on the value of something based on the outcome. Not um, it's a, it's an outcome based principle, not a process based principle. It's um, then when they were explaining it, I think they were explaining it in the um, context of an action is deemed moral if it results in the happiness or something along that line of um, the majority of the population. But the general, the basic idea, I don't know how it applies to a situation like this, is that the um, end, I think the general idea is the end justifies the means that the outcome is the focus. Thank you very much. Thank you so, so much. See, what you said was just it. Utilitarianism is a theory of morality that advocates actions that foster happiness or pleasure and oppose actions that cause unhappiness or harm. When directed towards making social, economic, or political decisions, a utilitarian philosophy will aim for the betterment of society as a whole or the achievement of the highest level of happiness for the highest number of people. That's at the basic understanding of utility. Utility says, hey, I want the best outcome, no matter the process. Okay? That is utility. Utility says, listen, I don't care what you have to go through. I want a better life. Okay? I want a better life. And... I want to increase that life by increasing the amount of good things in the world, increasing the amount of pleasure and avoiding discomfort or avoiding unhappiness. So th that's the principle of utilitarianism. He has like three, um, he has three aspects to it. Utilitarianism has like three aspects or there are three principles that serve as the basic axioms of utilitarianism. One is that pleasure or happiness is the only Thing that truly has intrinsic value. So to the utilitarian, pleasure or happiness is the only thing that has intrinsic value. Then um, the second one is that actions are right insofar as they promote happiness, and then actions are wrong insofar as they produce unhappiness. And then the third one is that everyone's happiness counts equally. So in utilitarianism, there is an establishment of what counts as happiness and how there's an egalitarianism in happiness of, of people, how it's measured equally and stuff like that. So there's that enjoyment um, kind of outlook. I like utilitarianism because it kind of reflects that outlook. It gives a beautiful... Um... Oh, but by the way, don't get carried away when I say I like utilitarianism. I just think like, yeah, utility seems to be a good thing because, you know, it promotes happiness and, you know, we all want to be happy, right? But then... Again, utility has backlogs, right? It has backlogs because um, there is no account on what, you know, um, some people have to suffer for happiness to be, you know, given out. So utility justifies things like government taking your property for the greater good. For instance, like in the case where in certain countries where if government finds oil underneath your land, they, they take it, okay? And they say they take it because um, it is a good of the people. They're taking it to better the lives of the people, so they're taking it to establish better rights for the people. So utilitarianism does not mind diminishing individual rights as long as they get to maximize collective happiness. So you see, under utilitarianism, rights of people tend to suffer and go down and so on and so forth. So I wanted us to just look at utilitarianism on that level. Okay? Do we get that for utilitarianism? It is very important that we get that. Another principle I want us to, or I want to know if we have um, looked into or if we have heard before is the principle of deontology. Deontology. Does anybody know what um, deontology is? D-E-O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Okay, um, I'll give it a try. 
Okay, go on. Okay. Yes, you are the book of the ontologies, uh, the direct opposite of utilitarianism, whereby um, they basically go for, like the ontologists uh, go for process, like they say process matters. If we are going to take the wrong process to get the result, that means the entire result is even based on the wrong process, thereby it's not, um, it's not legit. So they go, like, like they, they, they go against this principle of the end justifies the means, whereby they say that the means is important. The means, like the means, is important to be considered when we're looking at the end. So, uh, basically, the ontologists um, say that we care about the process of achieving that um, that happiness you you think you have. So, they they basically consider the uh, the means. It's very important to the ontologists. Beautiful. Thank you very much. That is a beautiful intro. On, on the ontology. Sorry, am I having Sorry, a little bit? Okay. Okay. Success, please Success, mute your mic. Thank you very much. Great. So the ontology, thank you for that answer. That is a very basic way to look at it and it really works for this class because you're trying to break everything down to understandable nitty-gritties, right? Deontology is a theory that suggests actions are good or bad according to a clear set of rules. Historically now, deontology comes from the Greek word deon, which means duty. Actions that obey these rules are ethical, while actions that do not obey these rules are not ethical. This ethical theory is most closely associated with the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. Yes, I know. Um, Immanuel Kant is, um, it's spelled, the Kant is spelled K-A-N-T. Please. His work on uh, personhood is an example of deontology in practice. Kant believed the ability to use reason was what defined a person. Okay? Someone's laughing in the text space. <laughs> okay, from an ethical perspective, Personhood creates a range of rights and obligations because every person has inherent dignity, something that is fundamental to and is held in equal measure by each and every person. You see, this dignity now creates an ethical line in the sand that prevents us from acting in certain ways either towards other people or towards ourselves because we have dignity as well. Most importantly, Kant argues that we may never treat a person merely as a means to an end. Okay? But people must be they must never be treated just as a resource, but they must be treated as an end in and of themselves. So that was Immanuel Kant's philosophy. Kant's ethics isn't the only example of deontology. Any system involving a clear set of rules is a form of deontology, which is why people call it the rule-based ethic. The Ten Commandments is an example. It's a universal declaration of human rights. Okay? And that is why it works in that sense. So, in fact, the idea of deontology is that it's, it comes from a place of deus. It, comes, it takes the authority. Its ontology is from a deus perspective. So there, there has to be a, a higher power from which you define humanity to have its ethics. So that is where deontology comes from. So do we understand deontology as... Um, as it relates, okay, we've done, we've done utility, we've done deontology, but do we understand, oh, text format, okay, someone's asking for text format, fine, I'm going to provide um, a text format for you, okay, um, at the end of this class. So, but then, do we understand deontology as it relates to um, utility? Do we like as we relate in contrast to utilitarianism? Do we get that that link? Because it's really important that we look we look at that. Okay, uh, Amazing Grace said yes. She 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 does understand. Um, there is more. Okay, there is more to the ontology. You could check um, ethics.org to understand more about uh, deontology. 
you could uh you know there are, there are many just check these principles are you know the, the thing is that they are readily available online and um it's it's available at you know the click of a button for you to get it it is really beautiful um under deontology um it's strongly opposed to consequentialism and you know there, there's a lot these are um strengths and weak their strengths and weakness of deontology and so on and so forth but you have to understand them and understand how they operate okay in a debate okay uh conceit theory the reason why i took you to utility and um deontology first was to give you an idea of um how humans establish rights and how humans make decisions based on so but now let's look at social contract theory social contract theory is a belief that a person enters into society to secure rights and or protection depending on the philosopher. The concept of a social contract represents the agreement between the individual and the society. The terms, the terms of this contract differ between philosophers. You could look at, for more, you could look at John Locke when he talked about inalienable rights. All men, according to John Locke, have certain natural rights that existed before society was created, and those rights are good in and of themselves. In the natural state, that means in a state where there is no government, however, men's rights come in conflict with each other. And this conflict leads to war, mostly because my right ends where yours begins. And most times there is a blurry line in me defining where my right ends and where your right begins. And that's why war, you know, stems in society and why we have war. As a result, men enter into society and form a social contract. These natural inalienable rights include the right to life, the right to liberty, the right to property, which include both material possession and personal fulfillment, which is similar to the pursuit of happiness. So government is created to protect these rights. Government serves three purposes in this case. Government establishes the law. Government acts as an authority and settles conflicts. Government applies consistent justice. Government establishes the law as in government establishes the metric for reward and punishment in society based on how laws are encroached from person to person second rule of government is government establish uh, sorry acts as an authority and settles conflict because where two people's rights conflict the government has to draw a line to show who is right and who is wrong and that comes in through conflict resolution the third one is government applies consistent justice please note the word consistent government has to apply in fact this is the reason why we have a constitution so that we could establish the basis for consistency in the justice system. Otherwise, because each case differs and each lawyer's interpretation of a case differs, it becomes tougher and tougher if the laws have to arbitrarily you know, define themselves. That's why the government has to establish a metric, a consistent metric for applying justice. Again, Government does not cause minority suppression, okay? Government does not exist to cause minority suppression. So if, if you are in a debate and someone is having a conversation about how, you know, government causes my, uh, um, um, how it is okay for minors to be suppressed because it is a majority vote system, because it's a democracy, you must show that government exists to protect minorities. That is, the, that is one of the fundamental roles of government, to protect the vulnerable. Minorities are vulnerable. Therefore, minorities fall under the scope of people that demand protection from the government. Because minorities fall under that spectrum, government owes it a duty to protect them. So government does not cause minority suppression. Rather, it enlarges liberty. 
since in the state of nature, freedom is limited by conflicting rights of individuals. To achieve this end, government should promote justice and operate according to majority rule while promoting equality. However, in social contract theory, especially with John Locke's, in, uh, with John Locke's inalienable rights, critics will argue two flaws. One, there is no proven instance, and this is where you know, there's an opposition to this case, so I want you to follow it. It's very beautiful. There is no proven instance where people first got together and gave their consent to the social contract. This argument states that a lot of people are born into government without the ability to opt out of that government. They did not, in essence, gather and agree to a social contract. They did not sign a social contract on a basic level. Therefore, they are not bound by a social contract. So this is like a, a critique against social contract theory. But then the second one is that people who were born under the government are not at liberty to create another one. This is where it's funny. So let's assume, this second one assumes that, okay, let's say there were people who came together and agreed to form a government, right? And then government existed. Those who are now born under that government now are not given the rights constitutionally to exempt themselves from that government or to create a counter-government to that government. What this that means is that because people cannot change the terms of the contract that was initially established and therefore are born into it by the lottery of birth, they now, it is, the social contract now becomes flawed because it doesn't cater for the rights of those individuals who were born under it. Do you understand this critic? Do we all understand this critic with regards to um, John Locke's inalienable rights? Come on, I need feedback. Okay, okay, Zemano says, yes, sir. Okay, that is great. Uh, Venom, the way what is typing. If you have any questions about that, this would be the time to bring it up so that we could look into it before we go into the next principle. Also notice, this does not intend to be an exhaustive class. We will have our debate master classes. In our master class, we are going to deal with all these things on an intense level. So for those of you who will be interested in the master class, just keep coming to class. Once it is set up, I'll let you guys know. And that's when we'll be moving from debate into very intense, sorry, from, from scratch to advanced debates, right? Okay, um, Venom to the World asks, who are the propounders of the flaws of the theory of social contract? The propounders of the flaws are just critics. You know, they are critics who criticize certain theories. Um, I don't have their names at hand right now, but trust me, when you check online, you will find the um, propounder of the, of the uh, law as well as they will mention the names of some of their critics because some of these critics are, crit uh, are widely known for criticizing school of thoughts that are, you know, that relate in a certain way to certain fields. So they are specialized. And for that reason, they are widely no uh, known. Okay, that's great. So, so I'm going to. We're going to move Hobbes theory. In Thomas Hobbes theory, it states that people desire power and are willing to do whatever is necessary in the absence of government to get that power. Thomas Hobbes self-preservation theory also assumes that people are greedy and can act in destructive ways towards each other when there is no common power to keep them in line. Thomas Hobbes' theory of self-preservation as well says that all people are essentially equal and every person possesses the natural right or liberty to act in whatever manner he believes is appropriate in order to preserve his life and objects which improve his life. So in, a, in essence, people have the incentive to act selfish. That state of equality and the freedom to act according to one's own desire will cause a natural condition of living in constant fear. Okay? Fear of, you know, someone else who is more power than, powerful than you, taking away your rights, and so on and so forth. To gain a sense of security, people therefore naturally agree to develop a sovereign 
state or a government to develop a sovereign or a government. Hobbes refers to this government as the Leviathan. Okay? Hobbes argues that a natural sovereign would only propose laws to regulate people when it was necessary for the common good. This concept now becomes or became Hobbes' theory of self-preservation. Hobbes' theory of self-preservation. Look, people desire power and they'll get it, you know, no matter what the means are. People who desire power will come for power and they will want to get it. And because they want to get that power, they want to get it in any means, in the absence of government, they'll get it in any way. This could mean killing people, committing genocides, uh, burning down cities, killing children, committing whatever form of crime is necessary so that people will act in their selfish interest to protect, gather, collect, and consolidate power. So, but the, that state of equality to protect your life and your property and the things that matter to you, it makes you live in constant fear. And that is why people agree to form a government. And this is where the social contract theory, you know, comes in. That's great. So now I'm going to go into Jean Jack, Jean Jacques Rousseau, General Will. Jacques spoke of General Will in Jacques says. Okay? Jacques says humans are good by nature, but they become corrupt through social interaction. He contends that man is originally without sin and that he comes into this world a free being, tabula rasa, and that he is equipped with the capacity for decency, public spiritedness, candor, and authentic rationality. This natural innocence, however, is corrupted as people interact with one another. People's natural differences in skill and ability give rise to artificial differences, particularly those of wealth and poverty. You know, because naturally in our society, the more, skill, the more skillful you are, you know, the more um, enterprising you are, the higher the chances that you'll be more wealthy than people who have less skills and so on and so forth. Okay. The artificial differences result in envy and contempt, which will lead to a breakdown of the community. Therefore, individuals can never return to the original state of goodness. The answer to this problem is not to maintain a savage state, but to construct a higher civilization. The social contract in Rousseau's world is meant to be a blueprint for this higher civilization. The general will. In order to achieve a higher state of civilization, all individuals must indicate themselves, sorry, must dedicate themselves solely to seeking the common good for all, which is the general goodwill. Because the general will is grounded in a concern for the common good, it can never seek particular object or interest. Benefits and burdens must be distributed equally to all citizens. And that's for um, the general will by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. In this introduction to general will, you've understood how people get to construct social contracts, you know, how society would exist in a state of nature. You've seen the nature of Thomas Hobbes when he talks about self-preservation. You've seen the, the state of nature that John Locke talks about when he talks about um, people going into a state of chaos. You've seen also that of Jean-Jacques Rousseau when he talks about the general will of people. It gives insight into how society is formed. And if you follow it very closely, it is going to help establish an understanding. An understanding of what the role of government is or should be. The role of government should exist 
to protect the rights of people. In fact, it makes sense for the role of government to, uh, to be the protection of citizens. Because remember, the government cannot exist without the citizens. Okay? So for those of you who need the notes, I have dropped images on the um, text space. You could go through them. Those are, those are essentially like the notes for today's class. And um, this is it's a great resource for you all to um, enjoy. So I, I know Amazing Grace is really super excited. I can see her already uh, jumping at it. She said, ah, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Um, this class aims to get you familiarized with everything you need, everything you require for an excellent debate life and we'll build it from the Okay? So um, before I go into questions, I want to give you my quiz. Okay, you know, I always leave you with a quiz for every class, right? Um, my quiz is write short notes on, and by the way, you don't have to submit this directly to me, but you have to do this for yourself. That way you get to remember a lot of the things we've, we've done in class and you get to engage with um, the debate materials outside of the context of this class, which is very good for you because it allows you to contemplate these materials independently without my voice in your ears. So write short notes on A, badgering, B, point of, inform of clarification, and C, cutting off. And then question two will be, what are the three purposes that government serves? And question three, outline the constituents of natural rights. Ha <laughs> ha, outline the constituents of natural rights. Okay, so these questions are available. They are part of the documents I have sent on the text space. So feel free to go through the... Um, the files you have on the text space, your quiz is also there as well. And uh, right now it's time for questions. I'm so excited because when it gets to questions, uh, I am engaging with you and you know what you do as a uh, uh, as a person and your perspective, your unique perspective towards debate. So we are done with today's class, season one, episode five of From Scratch was a hit back to back it is a wrap and thank you all very very much uh i can see a lot of people really typing at the text space i can't wait to see what you're writing i can't wait to read it out as uh, feedback if you're listening on the podcast right now uh feel free to drop your comments thank you for going through this class trust me you've become better and we are so blessed to have you in class today we had an amazing amazing in-house audience Okay, uh, um, Amazing Grace is asking me when are we submitting it. Again, you do not need to submit your assignments to me, um, but it, it matters to you that you do these assignments on your own because it will also help you when you're transiting into or transitioning into the master class, the debate master class. You will be very prepared and really equipped and uh, in handling very tough or rather, more in-depth look into these things that we are doing here. So right now, it's time for questions. Um, can I have the first person who wants to ask me a question? Kindly unmute your mic and ask the question. I am so excited to attend to questions. Like I said, I love this segment. So feel free to unmute your mic and I'm here. Your question does not even necessarily have to be only about our class today. So you can ask within this scope and out of this scope. And I'll be very, very excited to go through with you. 